Of course, there's a lot of ways to begin an investigation for abnormal uterine bleeding or heavy menstrual bleeding. There's blood work to look for coagulation defects and thrombocytopenia. Of course, there's evaluations for endocrine disorders and ultrasounds to look for uterine masses or ovarian masses or as a preliminary survey to check the endometrial cavity. Of course, we don't really know how thick of an endometrial cavity is considered too thick for a premenopausal patient, but some consider anything more than 22 to 23 millimeters pretty darn thick, even if they're premenopausal. Of course, in the postmenopausal patient, a endometrial stripe greater than 4 millimeters is abnormal. Now, EMB has its place, but endometrial biopsy does not sample the entire cavity, and it's much better at ruling in disease than in ruling it out. That's why I'm a big fan of office hysteroscopy and hysteroscopy in general. For the office, we use a 5mm scope at the 30-degree lens because it allows for minimal manipulation of the scope to see the ostea and get a good view around the cavity. So in this podcast, we're going to cover the specifics of hysteroscopy, how to do it safely, how to do it without patient pain if you're doing it in the office, and we're going to talk about some things to keep us out of harm's way. Ready? Let's do hysteroscopy now. Hi, this is Michael Jr., fourth-year medical student at Texas A&M University and soon-to-be OBGYN. This is Clinical Pearls. Now, before we go any further, I have to stop, and I don't want to give the impression, of course, that hysteroscopy is only used if there's an endometrial lesion or they're having abnormal bleeding. Don't forget that hysteroscope is a great way to remove the embedded or the lost IUD that doesn't have any strings attached anymore. I've stopped using the IUD hook. I haven't done that in about 10 years because it's so easy to just pop in the scope find it, put in a grasper, and then pull it out. So remember that it's not just those patients that have technically, quote, something wrong, but for those that require evaluation of the cavity for even things like a foreign body removal or the trapped IUD. All right, first of all, you've got to see something when you put the scope in, right? In premenopausal women with regular menstrual cycles, the optimal timing for diagnostic hysteroscopy is during the follicular phase of the menstrual cycle, after menstruation, so you can see something. Of course, always rule out pregnancy before you put a scope into the uterus. Hysteroscopy during the secretory phase of the cycle can make diagnosis of lesions much more difficult. Now, women who have unpredictable menses may be scheduled at any time for operative hysteroscopy, but ideally, patients who are actively bleeding should not undergo the procedure because adequate visualization is just going to be impaired. Now, pretreatment with progestins or combination birth control pills can actually improve visualization by thinking the endometrium. Data do support the pretreatment with combination oral contraceptives to increase visualization or single-agent progestins. Now, although pretreatment with a GnRH agonist can also thin the endometrium and reduce blood loss and improve visualization, it's just not routinely recommended because of their adverse effects. However, in patients who have severe anemia, then you can use GnRH agonists to help prepare the endometrium and stop bleeding in an attempt to optimize hemoglobin levels. But again, that's only in that very special population. We usually just use Provera 10 milligrams BID for 7 to 10 days and then do the hysteroscopy within about the first, first or second day after the last pill. And their cavities are pretty darn clean. 
Now, for pre-op ripening of the cervix, this really depends on the patient's age. There is insufficient evidence to recommend routine cervical ripening before diagnostic or operative hysteroscopy, but it may be considered for those patients at higher risk of cervical stenosis or increased pain with a surgical procedure. Well, who's at higher risk for cervical stenosis? Well, patients who've had previous cervical treatments or patients who are perimenopausal or obviously postmenopausal. In women undergoing diagnostic hysteroscopy in either the OR or the office, Cytotec or misoprostol has been studied at various dosages, anywhere from 200 to 400 micrograms, either orally or vaginally, and it's demonstrated a decrease in procedure time, improved ease of cervical entry, and decreased pain scores. Intravaginal Cytotec of 400 micrograms has been shown to decrease pain during and after office hysteroscopy when administered at least four hours before the procedure. So I always remember 400 micrograms by four hours before the procedure. Also, in postmenopausal women, the data shows that if you add 25 micrograms of vaginal estrogen for two weeks before the procedure and then give the vaginal cytotec at least 12 hours before the procedure, remember they're postmenopausal, so they need a little bit more time for that medicine to work, then there's increased ease of cervical dilation and there's reduction in pain in patients who receive that combination compared to women who don't. Operative hysteroscopy can include polypectomies and, of course, myomectomies through the hysteroscope, and you can do synechiae removals as well as septum removals or resections. But for this podcast, we're really focusing on polypectomies and myomectomies because the removal of synechiae and septal resections is more advanced hysteroscopy. We'll just leave that for another time. Let's focus on operative hysteroscopy focusing on myomectomy. For hysteroscopic myomectomy, the use of dilute vasopressin solution during that procedure has been shown to decrease intraop blood loss and decrease distension fluid absorption significantly in randomized trials. But the benefit of GNRH agonist as an adjuvant before routine hysteroscopic myomectomy is still somewhat unclear. Hysteroscopic resection of endometrial polyps and submucosal leiomyomas can be performed using either monopolar or bipolar wire loop electrodes. Of course, remember, though, that that affects the kind of distension media that you're going to use. Although the use of monopolar resectoscope requires an electrolyte-free distending media like glycine or sorbitol, bipolar resectoscopes can be used with electrolyte-containing distension media like normal saline, which obviously is a lot safer. And we'll talk about distension medium in just a little bit more in just a minute. Now, hold on, I got to tell you, because even though we talked about monopolar or bipolar resectoscopes, I'm a huge fan of intrauterine morselation. Now, not uterine morselation that everybody gets all upset about in the pelvis. I'm talking about, of course, intracavitary morselation that can remove and withdraw tissue samples at the same time. If not, you're chasing around tissue fragments all over the endometrial cavity. So just in fair disclosure, of course, in fair balance, don't forget that there are newer hysteroscopic devices that actually aren't newer anymore, they've been out for some time, that can help remove tissue and aspirate at the same time like the hysteroscopic morselators. 
At the beginning of the podcast, we mentioned office-based hysteroscopy. Well, in randomized trials, patients report a preference for office-based hysteroscopy compared to procedures done in the OR. And that's because there are several advantages to office-based hysteroscopy, including better physician and patient convenience, avoidance of general anesthesia, less patient anxiety, and of course, it's pretty cost-effective. Now, if you're doing it in the office, I'm a big fan and I've actually published on vaginoscopic approach to hysteroscopy compared to conventional hysteroscopy. Now, you've got to get regular hysteroscopy down before you try the vaginoscopic approach. But vaginoscopy is a surgical technique involving the insertion of the hysteroscope to visualize the vagina, cervix, the uterine cavity, all of these structures without the use of a speculum or cervical tenaculum. Now, a quick word of caution here, not every patient is going to be able to have a vaginoscopic approach. So if you can't get it with a vaginoscopic approach, it's not a failure to place a speculum and do it the old-fashioned way. The vaginoscopic approach has been shown to reduce procedural pain, and it's also a little bit quicker because you don't have to mess with the other devices. Both ACOG and AAGL agree that vaginoscopy may be considered when performing office hysteroscopy because studies have shown that it can significantly reduce procedural pain with similar efficacy. Now, the reason that you can do office-based hysteroscopy is because complications, while they do happen, are somewhat rare. The two largest multi-center studies of over 13,000 diagnostic and operative hysteroscopies combined and a study that looked at 21,000 operative hysteroscopies found overall complication rates of 0.28 for diagnostic and operative combined and 0.22% for just operative hysteroscopy. Significantly more complications occurred during operative hysteroscopy than during diagnostic hysteroscopy. Now, the most common periop complication of hysteroscopic surgery is uterine perforation. In a systematic review, the use of pre-op misoprostol reduced rates of false passage formation, but it actually did not reduce rates of uterine perf during operative hysteroscopy major bleeding, suspicion of visceral injury, or perforation by an electrosurgical electrode may warrant immediate surgical intervention if you're using a surgical electrode during the case. Well, what about periop antibiotics? I mean, is that required? Well, antibiotic prophylaxis is not recommended for routine hysteroscopic procedures. Hysteroscopy is contraindicated, of course, if there's an active pelvic infection and in women with prodromal or active herpes infection. In randomized trials, the administration of antibiotic prophylaxis has not been shown to reduce post-op infections after diagnostic or operative hysteroscopy. All right, family, let's finish this up with a quick review of hysteroscopic distending media. Because I always got this confused as a resident, but it's really actually pretty straightforward. First of all, all the hysteroscopic distension media are only two different classes. It's either low viscosity or high viscosity. Now, it just happens, though, that low viscosity is further subdivided into electrolyte pour and electrolyte containing. All right, so distension medium is either low viscosity or high viscosity. Let's just kill high viscosity here just right off the bat. It's really hard to use. We're talking about things like Dextran or Hiscon, and it can crystallize on scopes. So while there is a place for high viscosity solutions, especially because a lot of those distension mediums are not mixable with blood, so it provides a really nice clear view, especially in a bloody cavity, 
but it just has issues, so most people use low viscosity fluid either with or without electrolytes. For the low viscosity electrolyte pour options, we're talking about 1.5% glycine, 3% sorbitol, or 5% mannitol. Okay, and remember that's GSM, GSM. So the lower percentage is glycine, the middle is sorbitol, and then the higher is mannitol at 5%. When I was at Parkland as a resident, I learned this by Dr. Bruce Carr, who was the REI on faculty. He said, you'll never forget what the percentages are if you remember GSM. It is what every young female resident is looking for. And I was like, what does that mean, GSM? A good-looking single male, GSM. I know that's tacky, but look, you know, 20 years later, I still remember it. So glycine's 1.5%, sorbitol's 3%, and mannitol 5%, GSM. For this category, low viscosity electrolyte pour, the maximum fluid deficit is 1,000 mLs. If you're asked on the oral boards, what are these complications from fluid absorption in this category? Remember that excess absorption of these fluids can lead to hyponatremia, hyperammoninemia, and decreased serum osmolarity with the potential for seizures, cerebral edema, and of course death. Now let's move on to low viscosity, but electrolyte-containing solutions. Well, these are pretty easy. These are things like normal saline or LR. So because these are more physiologic, the maximal fluid deficit is much higher at about 2.5 liters. That's 2,500 milliliters. Complications here are typical of fluid overload, including pulmonary edema and congestive heart failure. Remember, in terms of tonicity, electrolyte-free solutions are hypotonic, but the ones that have electrolytes like LR or normal saline are isotonic. Use of this low-viscosity electrolyte-free medium, in those cases, they do have that greater risk of hypotonic hyponatremia and cerebral edema like we've just talked about. Complications from fluid overload may be minimized with careful periop planning, use of a fluid management system, and evaluation of intracavitary lesions to be removed. Fluid deficit is affected by the size and number of lesions removed, so remember that. And remember, just because you're not at the maximum amount of fluid required to be a deficit to stop doesn't mean you have to take it all the way to the limit. For healthy patients, even though the maximum fluid deficit is 1,000 mLs for hypotonic solutions and 2,500 mLs for isotonic solution, you should actually consider stopping the procedure below those numbers. If fluid deficit reaches 750 mLs for the hypotonic solutions or 2,000 mLs for the electrolyte-containing solutions, then consider stopping. And if you're using one of those kind of difficult-to-use high-viscosity solutions, then the absolute fluid limit deficit to stop those is 500 mLs. Look at that difference. So for high-viscosity solutions, you have to stop the procedure at 500 mLs and consider stopping at 300 mLs if those high-viscosity solutions are in use. And as we end the podcast, if you're ever asked on an oral boards, hey, so you're doing a hysteroscopic procedure and all of a sudden the patient starts complaining of some chest pain and you listen to their chest and you hear a mill wheel murmur, uh, what is that? 
Well, you have to remember that that is pretty classic of a gas embolism. Now, thankfully, gas embolisms are just not very common, but certain things that we do can elevate that risk, like repetitively taking out and then putting back the scope can potentially introduce air into the cavity. A churning or a splashing oscillatory sound called the mill wheel murmur is a classic physical presentation in the heart in those cases. Now, although the reported incidents of emboli have been variable in the literature, the rate of clinically significant gas embolism is actually pretty low. So remember, try to minimize repetitive insertion of instruments through the cervix because that can introduce air into the uterus like a piston-like manner. Removing intrauterine gas bubbles from the line is also helpful. And remember to limit intrauterine pressures so that you don't force gas bubbles into the intravascular space. Look how some weird memories never leave our storehouse in the brain, okay? Because I was an intern during a hysteroscopic procedure and I remember that my fellow said, Choppa, do the Durant maneuver. And I was like, what the heck is that? <laughs> so I, up to this day, I can define what the Durant maneuver is. Acute management of air and gas embolism consists of both supportive care and active measures, including prompt termination of the procedure, deflation of the uterine cavity, and the elimination of sources of fluid and gas. Durant's maneuver is described as placement of the patient in the left lateral decubitus position and Trendelenburg. Do y'all think about that in your head? So left lateral decube and Trendelenburg. The reason you do that is to promote migration of air or gas towards the right ventricle to reduce obstruction at the right ventricular outflow tract. Y'all get that? So the Durant's maneuver is positioning of the patient in left lateral decube and Trendelenburg head down so that that gas bubble can float up to the top towards the right ventricle to reduce obstruction at the right ventricular outflow tract. That brings us to a wrap. This has been our quick review and our summary of some key points for hysteroscopic surgery. We've covered the committee opinion from the ACOG, which is number three from March of 2020. Thanks for being part of our podcast family, and we'll see you next time on Clinical Pearls.